HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Jacobson Salt Company, America's leading salt maker. Learn more at jacobsonsalt.com. That's J-A-C-O-B-S-E-N salt.com. Now streaming from HRN, this is The Feed Feed. I'm Jay Cohen, Editorial Director of The Feed Feed, the world's largest crowdsourced food publication and social media community, serving as your daily source of what to cook, bake, and drink. Occasionally joined by our co-founders, Julie and Dan Resnick, we sit down with leaders and upstarts of the food media realm. So we often say that we're, as Feed Feed, answering this sort of age-old question, which is, what do we eat for fill-in-the-blank, breakfast, lunch, dinner? Our approach to doing so involves lifting up voices from culinary content creators all over the world, no matter how big or small their following is. This podcast takes the democratization of food media one step further by giving a behind-the-scenes look of the Epicurean magazines, websites, videos, and accounts you digest every day. We'll discuss everything from breaking into the industry, navigating social media. That's been my bigger social media thing is like, I think like I just get bored very quickly. And even when things are working really well, I'm like, everyone's doing this. I don't want to do this anymore. Building and growing community. People are like, why is it five E's? And I'm like, I don't know. When you say eats, how many E's does that feel like it sounds like? And that's why. No real good rhyme or reason to any of it, but that's also kind of been our style this whole time and producing content that resonates with young and old. You know, if someone doesn't like my writing or the photographs of my book or the design, that's subjective. But if I see that a recipe didn't work, then I really failed someone. So whether you want to know what goes into food styling a magazine cover, the process of getting a cookbook deal, understanding what the hell TikTok is, or grasping how a recipe can go viral. I mean, I guess the thing about going viral, too, is that um, then it becomes it's out there and and people start claiming it as their own. And that's happened a few times recently with that tart, which is sort of depressing. Mm, but... Drag them. <laughs> Name names. I'm not naming no. any names, but you know who you are. <laughs> we'll be covering it all. This is the Feed Feed Podcast. Subscribe to the Feed Feed wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And, you know, technology and industry put more food on the shelves and in the markets by extending the life of perishable goods with canning and processing methods. But was that food safe? By the late 19th century, the American food supply was filled with frauds and fakes and and deadly chemicals. It affected everything from milk and beef, black pepper and mustard, to candy, whiskey, and soda. It took one man, Dr. Harvey Wiley, chief chemist of the USDA, his entire career to campaign for food safety and consumer protection, and the ultimate creation of the Food and Drug Act in 1909, which was the first consumer protection act in history. My guest today is the award-winning writer and science journalist, Deborah Bloom, who will shed some light on the stories and struggles to make food safe from her book, The Poison Squad, one chemist's single-minded crusade for food safety at the turn of the 20th century, which is now a PBS documentary of the same name. Deborah Bloom is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and the director of the Knight Science Journalism Program at MIT. 
She's the author of several books, including The Poisoner's Handbook, and most recently, of course, The Poison Squad. She's been a columnist for the New York Times and a blogger for Wired, and she's the publisher of a digital magazine, Undark, which I've got to find out more about. Welcome to the show, Deborah. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, so specific, a science journalist. Hmm. You had a very interesting background growing up. I read about that, surrounded by science, and then before your studies in chemistry. Can you tell us a little bit about that background and growing up with science? Sure. I'd love to do that. So uh, I'm the daughter of a scientist and an entomologist and chemical ecologist who loved what I you know, usually described as the creepy crawlers of the world and, and, and brought them home quite often. When uh, <laughs> we had a tarantula, I had a tarantula as a housewarming present from him when I moved into my first apartment in college. <laughs> and when we lived at home, we actually for a while had a black widow uh, pacing around a little plexiglass box, which was the centerpiece of the dining room table. I mean, he loved this stuff. So I really grew up with that, with a love of science for an appreciation uh, of both, you know, when it was a little scary, but also the ways that it kind of opened up the world for you. And and so, um, you know, originally I planned to be a chemist. I was a chemistry major at Florida State when I uh, started college. I scared my own self right out of the laboratory within a year. I was a complete, sort of a dreamer of a chemistry student, which meant that I wasn't always paying attention. And uh, One day I actually set my hair on fire in the laboratory. I shouldn't laugh, but I didn't actually notice, right? Uh, the guy who was running the lab had to come up to me and go, uh, Deborah, do you smell smoke? <laughs> and it was my braids. I'm a lucky, lucky to be here, right? Well, scared. the good thing you found, yeah, later. good fa- thing you found your true calling then. <laughs> yes, and so I became a journalist, which I learned to love. Journalists, as you know, Linda, also like to try to figure out the way the world works, right, right? right? And like to raise interesting questions and then look for the evidence that either tears those questions down or supports them. So it's a very similar kind of thought process in a lot of ways. I really liked it, and then I've been very lucky at this stage of my career because I genuinely love chemistry. It's fundamental. It, you know, shapes our everyday lives in so many ways. It's yeah, well, beautiful. It's scary. It's the most, a wonderful thing to write about. So, at well, this stage s- of my career, you certainly got your fill of it with this most recent book, the the Poison Squad. I mean, the story of establishing safe food and drink and drugs is, I mean, it's so important to understand because it's still going on, and we have to stay vigilant. Um, yes. What? got you interested in, I know, okay, your interest in chemistry, but what got you interested in delving into, so deep into the story of the man who fought the battle, Dr. Harvey Washington Wiley, and his mission for pure food law? Yeah, I've, you know, I've been kind of making light of some of my interests, but I'm genuinely interested in things that are bad for you. I, I mean, I mostly <laughs> do toxicology. I know that sounds yeah. kind of weird and creepy, but it's for... Uh, I do a lot of toxicology. I'm interested in poisonous things, and I'm particularly interested in, in how we navigate in our everyday lives around figuring out what's risky and what's not. And so when I, uh, after I did Poisoner's Handbook and I was writing a, uh, a column called Poison Pen about this very subject for the New York Times, just when I was doing research, I, I popped these references to Wiley's most famous experiment, which is nicknamed the Poison Squad, and which is the title of my book. And we'll get into that a little a little later. <laughs> yeah, is that? I mean, is that is the poison? Oh, well, his studies caught your eye. What caught your eye and, and made you jump into it? Yeah, that's really an important point. So I was like, what is this, right? There's, that's an unusual name for a study. And, and when I started looking at it, and it is a food safety experiment, to, a very interesting food safety experiment, I started thinking to myself, well, why did you have to do this experiment, right? Um, 
why was this particular very dramatic look at, at the state of food additives and toxic chemicals in the American food supply so necessary? And that led me to go back and look at the state of food before regulation. And, and in the course of that, this is sort of a backwards way to get to your book, right? Yeah. But I started delving into 19th century food and shocking myself once I, I was able to really see what that landscape was. And that made me appreciate Harvey Washington Wiley. That made me see that I had stumbled upon the story of, of a really dedicated, determined, obsessive, you know, undaunted scientist and crusader on this front. And I like those kinds of people yeah. in the, I, I think they matter and, and I think they can change the world, which is a message of hope for all of us. So well, I mean, this, that, his, I yeah, his, I mean, this really was a one man battle for his entire career. It mattered to him more than anything else. What, right? Can you tell us a little bit about Harvey Wiley? I mean, when his when you know when he started this. I mean, he, he got an appointment early, pretty early on, a pretty um, vaulted position, really. As chief, he did. Yeah. Go ahead, tell us about in, that. In 1883, he was named the chief chemist of what was then called uh, the Bureau of Chemistry at the Department of Agriculture, uh, and it's important. As you say, it was an exalted position. This is like, you know, the 1880s. There is no FDA or any other consumer protection agency. And the only agency in the United States that is responsible for food safety is, is in fact, the Agriculture Department, mm -hmm. right? There's just nothing else. And so the Bureau of Chemistry had that in its, you know, sort of mission statement, but had generally not done it because this is a tiny group of chemists and they're also responsible for all farm chemistry. Um, and Wiley, who was born, he's the son of an Indiana farmer. Uh, his dad was also a crusader, right, was a, a, a farmer, but also a preacher and a conductor on the Underground Railroad. Um, went on to become the first professor of chemistry at Purdue University in the year it was founded. And then from there started looking at the food supply in this kind of, is it honest? Because honesty was really important to him. And he had started to be, develop a reputation for a chemist who could identify fake food when he was tapped for the federal position. So when he went to D.C. in 19. In, in 1886, you know, he really said, I know this is a problem. I know there's almost no research about it. And here I am in, you know, the one federal agency that has any responsibility for this. And I'm not going to blow that responsibility. Yeah, an we agent, are going to yeah, look at An this. agency that can actually do something. Now, you mentioned fake food. All right, so what was the first thing that caught his attention that really put him on this on this path. Well, interestingly, he was assigned by the state of Indiana to look at uh honeys and syrups uh, in particular like you know is maple syrup real? Is honey real? There were all these rumors apparently floating around in Indiana in the late 70s that these were starting to be fraudulent products. And so his first big look was actually looking at honey and syrup. And in the state of Indiana, with these analyses that he had done, and he was unusual. He had actually studied food chemistry in Germany and brought back some of the higher-end analytical instruments from Europe. He looks at these, and he realizes that about 90% of the honey and, and about the same amount or close to it of so-called maple syrup sold in Indiana is actually just dyed corn syrup. Mm. And, in fact, the honey bakery is so creative that they also put in fake honeycomb to make it look like corn syrup and they dye it and then they sell it for you know the much pricier product which is honey mm. and this is an eye-opening experience for him both because it makes him realize how extensive the fraud is but also because the food manufacturers get so angry at him 
Right. right. And, and, and go out of their way to try to really damage his scientific standing and a pushback against this. And, and, and this is something that's going to continue throughout his career, both the, you know, the discovery and the shock and the resulting anger from the manufacturers. Right. I, I think a lot of people aren't aware of how far-reaching the adulteration or contamination of foods extended. I mean, I know I, know I learned more than I wanted to, I think, about, <laughs> uh, about some foods from reading this. But can you give us some other examples? You, know, you said the syrups and the honey. Give us some other examples of foods and products that were affected. I mean, there was no labeling, right? So... Right. There's no, like, you know, laws regulating, you know, food integrity or food safety, so you don't have to label and you can put whatever you want in food. And and that means both additives or just, you know, when I say it's flour, is it really flour? So flour is a good example um, because what people used to do is... They would cut the flour with ground stone or gypsum, which oh. we use in wallboard today. Yeah. And you can actually find, you know, advertisements from gypsum makers to millers and flour manufacturers saying, oh, your product, you can make so much more money if you just mix in gypsum. So you started seeing that in flour. Spices, Wiley's studies showed were, you know, all, some of them were actually 100% adulterated. And people would use brick dust and cinnamon and paprika and those kind of reddish brown spices, they would use uh, charred rope and ground coconut shell in things like pepper. They would use in coffee, I, I tend to dwell on coffee because, um, you know, I don't get through a day without coffee, so it matters <laughs> to me. But coffee, ground coffee often had, you know, burnt rope. Sometimes they actually just crumbled up charred bone into the ground coffee cans. Oh and as rumors started uh, that, you know, ground coffee was not exactly what it claimed to be, uh, people started grinding their own beans, and then there became a, a cottage industry in fake coffee beans, usually made of some clay or dirt and wax. I actually read a statement from a a physician around the turn of the 20th century who speculated that 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 old phrase, a muddy cup of coffee, referred to the amount of dirt that Americans were drinking with breakfast every day, right? So, So that, but, you know, they found, you know, fake coloring in canned vegetables. They found... You know, people would pretend to make cheddar cheese and then make it more orange by adding red lead. I mean, there was almost not a product that was manufactured in the American food supply and sold primarily to city dwellers, right? If you were mm-hmm. on the farm, you were more likely to get what you produced yourself. Um, but in urban areas, almost every product uh, had some kind of contamination or uh, toxic additives or just plain fraud. And if I can give you one more quick example, sure. Linda, it's just an interesting one to me because there was a congressional hearing about some of this fraud in the 1890s. And one of the people who testified was a jam and jelly maker. And he, you know, testified that he made his strawberry jam with corn syrup, aniline coal tar dyes, a red dye derived from coal tar and grass seed, right? And then sometimes he'd put in some scraps of apples, uh, you know, apple skin that had come off when people were making applesauce. Then he said, because that's the competitive market. If I actually put strawberries in my strawberry jam, I'd lose money. And so that was, which is kind of crazy, right? Right. I just, when I was doing this research and I read all of the reports that Wiley and his chemists did, I thought, boy, I really bought into this mythology that what my grandparents or great-grandparents ate was this wonderful, wholesome, healthy food, when in fact it was the opposite. That's right. If it's homemade, it's good. Well, not if you're baking biscuits with adulterated flour. I mean... (laughs) That's right. And, you know, baking powder heavy in aluminum. And again, right, there's no standards to say how much of this you are limited in putting in. Well, then the the additives really became um, so far reaching with industrialization and, uh, you know, and taking over the mass production of of foods and canning. Um, Those, tell us about some of those. those. Those are pretty disgusting. 
Yeah, that's a really smart point because the ni- late 19th century, of course, is the rise. It's the, you know, accelerating industrial revolution and the royal rise of industrial chemistry. And so you have all these new chemical companies who are ginning up new compounds that can be used to preserve food or, you know, change food. I mean, in really unexpected, interesting ways. So borax, which you'll still see in the cleaning products, Department of your grocery store today, 20 Mule Team Borax. That's right. Was also a popular food preservative at the time. One of the interesting things about borax that the food manufacturers discovered is that it could sort of hide rot and decomposition in meat and vegetables, right? It, It would interact with some of the proteins and tighten them up so your meat would be a little less you know, loose, even though it had started to rot or your vegetables would seem a little crisper. So there was a lot of borax in the food supply. Uh, the salicylic acid, which we know from aspirin, right? right. The, it's in that same family of the acid that we use to, uh, that we use to make aspirin and which we know, of course, causes the lining of the GA tract to bleed. It was a really popular preservative and everything from fruit, you know, like dried fruits to wines to beers. It was banned in Europe but allowed in the United States. Mm. And uh, the one that I tend to dwell on quite a bit because it's just so unbelievable to me is, bo- is formaldehyde. Formaldehyde. I know. I, when, I, when I started reading all, all the things that were, were uh, you know, indul- adulterated with formaldehyde, it was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So involved. you could have formaldehyde every single meal of the day without knowing it in your food. And it was the number one, it was used in meat, but it was the number one milk preservative, right? Oh. And so the other thing you do see from this time period, which is a warning flag, you know, retrospectively, I guess, yeah. is that you see newspaper stories starting to pop up around the United States about embalmed meat. <laughs> and embalmed milk. And in the embalmed milk scandals of the late 19th century, they're almost all about children dying, right? Oh, There's been too much yeah. formaldehyde put into a batch of milk, and it's killed infants. Uh, there was one case summer in Indiana, I want to say about 18... 18- 97, 98, when 400 children died in one summer from wow. formaldehyde poisoning. So, yeah. I mean, it was a real danger. Yeah. Well, and then um, there are the stories of, as you mentioned, you know, someone who sees, a, you know, a pickle on the on in the barrel that's a little too green, or open up mm-hmm. a can of green beans and they're, you know, fluorescently green. Yeah, um, <laughs> people used to use copper sulfate, which is a heavy metal, and and there's a known path of copper poisoning, right? So they would put these heavy metals in there. And there were other metallic, I think I mentioned uh, red lead in um, cheddar cheese, but red lead was also used to dye candy. Arsenic was a popular food dye, like green candies were often colored green with arsenic. And they, uh, the confectioners had discovered that if you added a little arsenic, it's so bizarre, but if you had added, added a little arsenic to like that glossy candy shell that people put, you know, a thin layer of chocolate over, say, an M&M or whatever, right. uh, it made it shinier. So they used to call chocolate an arsenic shellac, and, oh. they, and you saw that also in the food supply. The food supply was really dangerous. It was unregulated. It was unlabeled. It was unsafe safety tested it was uh there were no standards for the amount you could use and so when you go back and you talk to public health historians well you know how do we judge the food supply in the 19th century they'll pretty uniformly say that the american daily diet was uh one of the top 10 causes of death in the united states in the 19th century wow. um and you don't see that today no right? i mean there are so, we still have you know cases of well, the labeling has become so so um, restrictive, and you know that the ingredients are supposed to be in the order in which they appear in the recipe. You know, being with the most first. Right. So when right. sugar comes up first, and it's not, and it's a tomato sauce, you know, you better start wondering. Um, yeah. But but yeah, there's now we only have to worry about you know how good a product is and and what other additives are in it. I mean, it's an imperfect system today. If you look at the CDC, I think, you know, they say about 3,000 people are just killed 
by eating food every year, partly um, bacterial contamination. And if you look at the way they break it down, you'll see a lot of times they'll say, well, this is, appears to be a pathogenic bacteria or, or this could be a chemical additive we don't know, right? Yeah, yeah. But 3,000 people a year is 3,000 too many, That's right? right. Um, well, it's not like it was, but well, it's still not perfect. So anyway. Wiley was, Wiley was, you know, obviously very, you know, upset and offended by by his discoveries. So tell us about how the title of the book came about. Tell how did he study this? What was his plan to study this? Well, he had spent, starting in the 1880s, a lot of time, you know, exposing problems in the food supply, arguing for legislation, consulting with Congress on bill after bill after bill that was tanked by uh, really food industry lobbying and money, right, in the legislature. And he was very frustrated and, and could not see how to move this issue forward. And finally, he thought, well why don't we just actually take a look at what these do to people, right? You could never do this today. Let's skip any wussy animal testing and just go poison some people, and, which was why that study that he called the hygienic table trials got the nickname the poison squad. Yeah, he didn't and call it the poison squad. He did not. That was uh, the creation of the uh, reporter at the Washington Post. So he called well, it what? The, the hygienic what? Table trials. The Hang on hy- one minute. Sure. I don't know how that happened. Okay. The hygienic table trials. All right. And, and greatly, you know, greatly um, uh, criticized and received the moniker the poison squad. Okay. So he called it the hygienic table trials. And um, and and if you look at the way he put it to Congress, that's the way he described it. And Congress gave him five thousand dollars to do this very sort of Victorian, amorphous-sounding experiment that sounds like you're just going to dine on a very clean table, right? But are you still there? I'm I'm here. Are you? You know, I yes. Um, so it's oh, like you're going to Can you hear so me? Yeah. Yeah, sorry. So he called it the hygienic table trial. It really sounds like you're just going to eat on a very clean table, right? Right. I don't think that Congress had a clue what he was going to do, but what he did was that he built a kitchen and a dining room in the basement of the agriculture department. Hired a high-end professional chef who had worked at some very good hotels came up with a plan in which if you volunteered, it was almost volunteering, they would pay you $5 a month. But other than that, you would get three free meals a day, seven days a week, you know, food and drink. Um, and uh, it would be amazing food, right? It was super fresh. It had no preservatives or additives in it. it had this wonderful cook. It was free food. And then uh, the only catch was that Wiley would add the, you know, the substance that he was interested in at the moment to the food. He ended up using capsules. And then you would have to be weighed and measured and, and have all kinds of medical tests. And I actually wondered at one point why anyone signed up for this. Huh. But they got hundreds and hundreds of people who wanted to do it. Right, well, I they guess free free let, food and five dollars a month. I mean, you know, in in, in in eighteen ninety whatever, right? That's that that's right. Not bad. Yeah. That's exactly right. I mean, some people were lucky to be making you know twenty or thirty dollars a month, so this was real money. And so he ended up just. Uh, I always describe it as poisoning your coworkers. Right? <laughs> they ended up, which is a lovely thought. Mm-hmm. But they just used young clerks at the Department of Agriculture uh, because they knew they could really keep track of them. And he picked young men in their 20s, many of whom had been college athletes, 
because he wanted them to be really what I guess you would have called at the time a sturdy specimen, right? Someone who wouldn't readily fall sick, someone who wasn't in a vulnerable population. Um, and Wiley had been talking a lot when he uh, about vulnerable populations. Maybe this is fine if you're strong and healthy, but you know, what if you're sick? What if you're a child? What if you're elderly, right? We so he picked these young, super healthy men. Then they started with borax because it was so uh, common, and uh, off they went. Wow. Well, we're going to talk about more of his struggles and where it led when we come back after a quick break. So stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Jacobson Salt Company. Jacobson's flake and kosher sea salts have garnered worldwide favor for their beautiful presentation and pure taste. In addition to an extensive assortment of pure sea salts and infused sea salts, Jacobson Salt Company also produces a line of salty confections, honey, cocktail salts, seasonings, gift sets, and other pantry staples. Harvested from the cold, pristine waters of Neatarts Bay on the Oregon coast, Jacobson Salt Company is a favorite amongst professionals and home cooks alike. Founded in 2011, Jacobson Salt Company's mission is grounded in craftsmanship and community, maintaining the vision of providing the very best cooking ingredients, from hand-harvested sea salt to single-origin honey. More information on Jacobson Salt Company and their extensive line of products can be found at jacobsonsalt.com. Okay, we are back, and I'm speaking with Deborah Bloom, the author of The Poison Squad, One Chemist's, what is it, One Chemist's Single-Minded Crusade for Food Safety at the turn of the 20th century. I mean, you know, this poison squad he developed, these people he was feeding, I mean, it, it came under such fire, and, and people made fun of it, wrote songs about it, right? Journalists were, you know, attacking him from all sides. Um, but I'm sure some people were were incensed and rather curious and hesitant to eat some of these foods that he was talking about. I think that's right. I mean, I think some of it was how much you actually knew, right? Yeah. yeah. So one of Wiley's big missions was to get the information out. He, you know, at one point in the 1890s, he hired the first science writer ever hired by the federal government to take the reports that he was doing about food and, and translate them into public documents that would be accessible to people. Yeah. And he did a lot of, you know, going and he talked at schools, he talked to women's groups, which was a huge deal at the time because women didn't have the vote. So a lot of men of his stature didn't take them as seriously as he did. He spent, he worked with pure food advocates. He spent a lot of time trying to get this information out. But, you know, that was an uphill battle, getting the information out. And so I think one of the things you have going on is you people who are really following this issue, people who are um, in the food science or food chemistry or pure food community, they're all making very careful choices, right? But a lot of people didn't know this. You know, there's nothing on the can to give it away. There's nothing on the box to give it away. Um, the government is not doing, you know, an amazing job of getting the information out, and industry is telling you nothing. So people were eating a lot of dangerous food without really having that awareness. And so one of the challenges, both for Wiley and for his allies, was saying to the, you know, we'll talk a lot about being an informed consumer today, was creating this new generation of informed consumers. Right. And, I mean, you can't get anything done, we know that, in, even today in, uh, in politics, in the government, without public support. I mean, the public That's outcry right. is, you know, so important. And he, boy, he got a lot of, a lot of people, as you mentioned before, the food industry lobbying against him. I mean, it's, they were there to sell their products, and he was, you know, he was not doing him, them any favors. So they were, they were lobbying, you know, loud and strong Hard. against him, right? Yeah. They were. They repeatedly tried to get him fired. When you go, like I 
went to the Library of Congress and read through a lot of the Wiley papers. And, and there's these repeated efforts by industry, from the whiskey industry to the saccharin industry. That would be Monsanto, because Monsanto started out as a saccharin manufacturer, to Dow Chemical, to um, you know some of the other big food manufacturers. They're all writing to the president or writing to the secretary of agriculture or giving money to hostile congressmen who are supportive of their cause and trying to get him fired. And there's a number of times where, you know, the newspaper headlines are like, oh, he's going to lose his job tomorrow. He's made the wrong people mad. But, you know, he hangs on. And and I think one of the things that does happen is because he actually – his whole crusade was not about people of money and power, but about you know, people who were counting every penny and you know trying to do the best, their best to feed their families. That kind of public support, I think. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's it always affects those who who have the least um, the you know, means. You know, the poor That's people. Exactly That's right. Who always gets attacked. Um, I just want to interject something, but for or actually have you interject. Um, there were no dire consequences as a result of this of this testing group, the Poison Squad, were there? No, I mean, people got sick. And the first study, the Borax study, Wiley had picked Borax because he himself thought it might be really benign and he wanted to start, you know, with something that wasn't too dangerous. And then people got really sick. And they had to end that study uh, before they finished the round of the highest dose. People were throwing up. They were losing weight. They were dizzy. They, you know, they weren't dropping dead, but the effects were dire enough at the high dose yeah. that he ended that study. Yeah. And the formaldehyde study, and this won't surprise you, they didn't even get through the first round before they had to call it, right? Wow. It was so poisonous. Yeah, interesting. And yet the support, I mean, he did have a couple of big names that um, helped, that were his supporters. And those surprised me. Names came up like Fanny Farmer and Heinz. What what roles did they play? I'd love to talk about that. So I'll start with Fanny Farmer, who was the most popular cookbook writer of the time. Right. Um, her, you know, most famous cookbook, the Boston School of Cooking cookbook, sold millions of copies, right, and made her a very wealthy and it woman. Was just recently uh, re-edited and, and republished. Yes, that's right. And she, you know, taught at the Boston Cooking School. And the cooking schools are interesting because at a time where it's very difficult for women in many, at many colleges to be admitted, right? Lots of colleges wouldn't admit women. How do you educate women? Well, the cooking schools became a form of more rounded education and they would actually teach science. So when you look at Fanny Farmer's first book, the Boston Cooking School book, it's full of chemistry. It's like parts of it are a chemistry textbook. It's really amazing. Um, but, but what you see with the Fanny Farmer cookbook and what you, what you see with other cookbooks of the time is that the cookbook writers are trying to use the cookbooks again, you know, as kind of extended education as well as recipes. Mm-hmm. So they raise the flag on food, right? You know, you may put cinnamon into this recipe, but just be aware it might be brick dust. And, you know, yes, coffee, but coffee can't be trusted. And Fanny Farmer, one of the ones that she did that made a big impression on me, wrote a cookbook. It was in 1904, which was about cooking for convalescents and people who are ill. And she wrote a whole chapter on milk and just said, milk is so dangerous. You have to be so careful if you're going to use it. Here are some of the things you might be able to do, but mostly it's the sea of bad chemicals and pathogenic bacteria. I mean, it's really an amazing thing. Hmm. So you saw people like Fanny Farmer who had huge audiences trying to get the word out, right? Right. and many of the women's groups. And the other example you gave of Henry J. Hines, I like because, you know, it's important to recognize that um, there are really businessmen who are trying to do the right thing, right, and, and put out an honest product and, you know, are voluntarily, even before regulation, trying to kind of clean up their produce and, or products. And one of these was Henry J. Hines, um, which I found a fascinating story because he starts looking at this, and he also 
he's getting some information that suggests that um, there's a gradual shift by American households away from manufactured food because they are realizing it's not trustworthy. And so, you know, partly because he thought it was the right thing and partly to preempt people going back to home canning, say, uh, he starts this whole program of getting preservatives out of Heinz products. And he starts with ketchup. And ketchup was a heavily preserved product at the time. It was not the t- thick tomato ketchup of today. It was often vegetable scraps, right, mm-hmm. from other processing, okay. uh, rotten vegetables, a lot of, like, pumpkin rinds and apple peelings and random scraps of vegetables from, you know, different canning processes would go into ketchup. They would be, you know, rotting, so you'd put in a, a heavy dose of preservative. They would be odd colors, so you dye them red with a coal tar dye. Um, and ketchup was kind of this thin, sloshy sauce of unknown origin, I guess mm-hmm. is what I want to say. Yeah. And so when Heinz came in, he said, well, you know, we dye it red because we're pretending that it's tomato. What if we – let's mess around and see if we can make a preservative-free tomato ketchup. And they discovered that to do that, they had to add a lot of vinegar. I mean, vinegar is an acid. It kills bacteria. Right. And if they ramped up the amount of tomato pulp in the ketchup, which is highly acidic, they could essentially create a, a you know a sauce that didn't need preservatives for a fair amount of time. And so Heinz comes out with the country's first preservative-free ketchup, which is a wonderful product, but it's very thick and it's hard to get out of the bottle. <laughs> and so in this process, he invents modern ketchup, right? right. All the ketchup, what we take for granted as ketchup today is Heinz saying, I'm going to make a preservative-free product. But he got very into this as well, right? He uh, did a lot of advertising about the Pure Heinz food products. He put Wiley's name in some of the advertising oh, approved by yeah. Harvey Wiley. Yeah, oh. isn't that interesting? Yeah. And he sent his... Um, uh, you know, like his executive vice president, uh, joined a group to lobby President Roosevelt for better food standards. I uh, mean, so he well, was very active. And I wanted to mention that, you know, Theodore Roosevelt was the president at the time, and he was he, he a very forward-thinking president. And and I think uh, Wiley probably thought he had someone on his side, but then he wavered with all the lobbying in, in uh, Congress. He did, and, you know, I mean, Roosevelt was a progressive within Mm -hmm. limits. He wanted to control big business, but he didn't want to erase it, right? Right. I mean, he was a a pragmatist, and he he realized or believed, depending on how you look at that, that, you know, the American economy stayed healthy with all of this business investment, and he really didn't want to mess with that. Wiley didn't care about that, right? Yeah. He, you know, his allegiance, if, if to put it that way, was really to the consumer. Roosevelt's allegiance is divided. You know, he wants to protect people. He wants to break up some of these overpowerful industries that he sees as corrupt. But he's not trying to knock business to its knees. Right. And, well, and there's a, there's a little matter of... of um, you know, support and and reelectability and <laughs> yes, that's right. And right. Roosevelt takes a lot of money. I mean, Roosevelt gets a lot of money as well from the food industry. And one of his campaigns, I believe, he got. I'm trying to remember this number, but something like a hundred thousand dollars, which was a ton of well, money. That's a right? fortune in those days. Yeah. Right, because the food industry realizes that they need Roosevelt on their side to block annoying regulation and rules that would hamper this very wonderful moment if you are a food manufacturer or a drink manufacturer and you can do whatever you want yeah. and all you, you know the only issue is how much money you're making and doing what you want so Roosevelt you know is not the ally Wiley hoped he would be and Roosevelt did you know wonderful things in breaking up some like trust busting with the railroads and some of the big companies yeah. But he's very divided on on the food issue, and he's very protective of, you know, some of his friends who are do take even more money than he does, right? Roosevelt, I mean, Roosevelt right. coined the term muckrakers, right, right? right. Uh, in response to an expose of corruption in the Senate. So, 
I, I mean, when I was doing the research on this book, I had always sort of mentally put a kind of halo over Teddy Roosevelt, the national parks and the national forests. Yeah. And, and then I was really mad at him. <laughs> right. You know, because I, because I, you know, I had expected him to plant his feet and say, this is a great cause. And he really didn't do that. And in the case of the food law, yeah, he took credit for things that he really hadn't done. Well, right. what's in, what's changed? I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, kind of echoing, <laughs> echoing our our present um, political that's situation. Exactly, <laughs> and that was one of the things that was a big finding for me as I started drilling down into this political moment where we're really closing in on regulation. Yeah. Is I thought, well, this is today, yeah. right? The right. politics and the lobbying and the sounds money. familiar. Yes, <laughs> right. but With you know, another the, thing, another thing that is so sounds so familiar too is that you know this all this science scientific studies weren't getting a lot of press or good press and so 25 years of all this hard work goes by until this tipping point as i Mm -hmm. would refer to it and that is by a popular author who did an expose on the chicago stockyards right the jungle the Jungle by Upton Sinclair. Yeah. So I always think of it as, you know, you have this fire and it's slowly, you know, being stoked and it's getting a little brighter and a little brighter, the food safety fire. And then the jungle pours gasoline on the fire and yeah. it's like a bomb, right? A, an explosion that really shakes the country. And so in this case, one what happens is, Upton Sinclair, who is a socialist novelist, right? He uh, is a is an underpaid writer. I have a lot of sympathy with that, <laughs> and he um, goes uh, gets very interested in the plight of the meatpacking workers in Chicago, and is able to persuade a socialist newspaper to let him write a serialized novel about the, you know the plight of these workers as they feed America. And that not serialized novel, which was first published in a, this socialist newspaper, Appeal to Reason, becomes the foundation of the jungle. And he eventually, and it's really hard, gets a big a New York publisher, Doubleday Page, to publish that book as a popular book, right? And uh, that book comes out in February 1906. Uh, and that book comes out. The timing is really good. Wiley and his allies have finally persuaded Roosevelt to make the first State of the Union address in which he says, you know, food safety is actually becoming such a problem we have to deal. So we, they know the president is on their side. And the jungle comes out. And even though the jungle is supposed to be about the plight of these immigrant workers, Sinclair had gone to the Chicago packing yards. He had spent, you know, almost two months there, wandering around, disguised as a worker, taking notes. And so the backstory of the book is the horrible conditions of meat processing, right? The blood-spattered walls, the flies, the dead rats that go into the sausage, the rotting meat that goes into the potted ham. And and other things that... (laughs) And other things. (laughs) I mean, it's like horrifying description. And, And, I mean, he said that he had aimed for America's heart and accidentally hit it in the stomach. There was like... But I, but it fell onto this very, like I said, this already burning fire right. where people are starting to, and it just exploded. And Roosevelt, who was a brilliant politician, sent his own fact checkers to Chicago who came back and said, yes, it's just as bad as in the book. And he used that report to blackmail Congress. He said to Congress, if you don't give me a meat inspection act, I'm going to release this whole report, and it's going to actually destroy the American meat industry. It's that bad. And he was able to use the leak a little bit of the report um, to to sort of underline that. And, in fact, he got the Meat Inspection Act passed in June of 1906. And in that kind of tidal wave of public fury over food, Wiley's Law, it was actually called Dr. Wiley's Law, Wiley's Law, the Food and Drug Act, passed about a week later. So you see this paradigm shift, it, right? It, the cause and effect. I mean, you write something that, you know, is that disgusting and, you know, people act. Uh, yep. It's it's amazing. And it's, ama- I mean, there's so, so much more and so many more really interesting stories. Um, 
in if, if you want to read a horror story too, it's a good book for that. I mean, the Poison yes. Squad has so much um, in it, so much history as well as that period, and so you can read the book, The Poison Squad, and it, it is. I'm sorry, the published once again by Penguin Books. Um, Penguin Press. Penguin right. Press, right? Um, and you can the. The documentary is now available. It's streaming. I think PBS is uh, streaming the mm-hmm. documentary, The Poison Squad. So if you, you can read the book and you can watch the documentary. Deborah, it, it is such incredible information. I mean, Wiley, Wiley went on. He had actually left. I mean, after 30 years, he finally got his law passed. But <laughs> I, what I love, and I just have to, to bring this in, is that he ended up going to Good Housekeeping Magazine, correct? Yes, that's right. Once again, telling that. people what's safe and what's good. <laughs> That's exactly right. And, you know, the women's magazines of the early 20th century were really crusading magazines. We, I mean, we don't look at them today, and, and maybe they're not exactly the same way. But Ladies Home Journal was the magazine that published the best expose of the drug industry in the country, right? And Good Housekeeping was crusading. So he went there and he crusaded. He created the Good Housekeeping Test Laboratories. He created something called the Good Housekeeping Seal of Approval, right? No, that was, I mean, that was huge. <laughs> yes. People I mean, lived I remember it by this, yeah. right? Right. <laughs> right. Absolutely. He oh. wrote columns on food, and he law- continued to lobby Congress and push for better food safety. Oh. Well, I encourage people who are interested in, in how to get a law passed, and this is not, <laughs> hopefully yeah. there are better ways. Um, but seriously, it, so many um, echoes of today's uh, difficult political situation, such as Dow Chemical releasing or the Henry what is it, Henry Dow releasing mm-hmm. disinformation studies disinformation. Yes. haven't we heard yes. that before? Right. Um, it's just an interesting read, a very a very interesting read, and uh, and the the documentary as well. Um, you have a chance to to see that on PBS streaming streaming on PBS. So Deborah, thanks again for sharing so much information, and I hope that we can talk to you again on your next investigation, investigative report. It sounds like there could be more things to come. It's fascinating and important, and thank you for having me on, Linda. You know, you've raised so many good questions, and it's really been great to be here. Terrific. And and thank my listeners for tuning in, and I want to remind everyone that Heritage Radio Network is a listener-supported radio station, and you can go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the donate button, the little beating heart in the right corner, upper right corner, and help support all this good information that keeps coming on the air. Thanks for listening. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends. And please, join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.